The Summa Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas. Question 168. Modesty as consisting in the outward movements of the body. Can there be virtue and vice in the outward movements of the body that are done seriously? Can there be a virtue about playful actions? The sin consisting in excess of play, the sin consisting in lack of play. Article 1. Whether any virtue regards the outward movements of the body. Objection 1. It would seem, it would seem that no virtue regards the outward movements of the body. For every virtue pertains to the spiritual beauty of the soul, according to Psalm 44, verse 14. Quote, All the glory of the king's daughter is within, and the gloss adds, namely, in the conscience. End quote. Now, the movements of the body are not within, but without. Therefore, there can be no virtue about them. Objection 2. Further, quote, Virtues are not in us by nature. End quote as the philosopher states. But, outward bodily movements are in man by nature, since it is by nature that some are quick and some slow of movement, and the same applies to other differences of outward movements. Therefore, there is no virtue about movements of this kind. Objection 3. Further, every moral virtue is either about actions directed to another person, as justice, or about passions, as temperance and fortitude. Now, Outward bodily movements are not directed to another person, nor are they passions. Therefore, no virtue is connected with them. Objection 4. Further, study should be applied to all works of virtue, as stated above. Now, it is censurable to apply study to the ordering of one's outward movements. For, as Ambrose says, quote, A becoming gait is one that reflects the carriage of authority, has the tread of gravity, and the footprint of tranquility. Yet, so that there be neither study nor affectation, but natural and artless movement. End quote. Therefore, seemingly, there is no virtue about the style of outward movements. On the contrary, the beauty of honesty pertains to virtue. Now, the style of outward movements pertains to the beauty of honesty. For, Ambrose says, quote, the sound of the voice and a gesture of the body are distasteful to me, whether they be unduly soft and nerveless, or coarse and boorish. Let nature be our model. Her reflection is gracefulness of conduct and beauty of honesty. End quote. Therefore, there is a virtue about the style of outward movement. I answer that moral virtue consists in the things pertaining to man being directed by his reason. Now, it is manifest that the outward movements of man are dirigible by reason, since the outward members are set in motion at the command of reason. Hence, it is evident that there is a moral virtue concerned with the direction of these movements. Now, the direction of these movements may be considered from a twofold standpoint. First, in respect of fittingness to the person. Secondly, in respect to fittingness of externals, whether persons, business, or place. Hence, Ambrose says, quote, Beauty of conduct consists in becoming behavior towards others, according to their sex and person. End quote. And this regards the first. As to the second, he adds, quote, This is the best way to order our behavior. This is the polish becoming to every action. End quote. Hence, Andronicus ascribes two things to these outward movements, namely, taste, or natus which regards what is becoming to the person, 
Wherefore, he says that it is the knowledge of what is becoming in movement and behavior, and methodicalness, bona ordinatio, which regards what is becoming to the business at hand, and to one's surroundings. Wherefore, he calls it, quote, the practical knowledge of separation, end quote, i.e., of the distinction of acts. Reply to Objection 1. Outward movements are signs of the inward disposition, according to Sirach, chapter 19, verse 27. Quote, The attire of the body, and the laughter of the teeth, and the gait of the man, show what he is. End quote. And Ambrose says that, quote, The habit of the mind is seen in the gestures of the body, End quote. and that, quote, the body's movement is an index of the soul, End quote. Reply to Objection 2. Although it is from natural disposition that a man is inclined to this or that style of outward movement, nevertheless, what is lacking to nature can be supplied by the efforts of reason. Hence, Ambrose says, quote, let nature guide the movement, and if nature fail in any respect, surely effort will supply the defect, End quote. Reply to Objection 3. As stated in Reply to Objection 1, outward movements are indications of the inward disposition, and this regards chiefly the passions of the soul. Wherefore, Ambrose says that, quote, From these things, i.e., the outward movements, the man that lies hidden in our hearts is esteemed to be either frivolous, or boastful, or impure, or, on the other hand, sedate, steady, pure, and free from blemish, end quote. It is, moreover, from our outward movements that other men form their judgments about us, according to Sirach chapter 19, verse 26, quote, A man is known by his look, and a wise man, when thou meetest him, is known by his countenance, end quote. Hence, moderation of outward movements is directed somewhat to other persons, according to the saying of Augustine in his rule, quote, In all your movements, let nothing be done to offend the eye of another, but only that which is becoming to the holiness of your state, end quote. Wherefore, the moderation of outward movements may be reduced to two virtues which the philosopher mentions. For, in so far as by outward movements we are directed to other persons, the moderation of our outward movements belongs to, quote-unquote, friendliness or affability. This regards pleasure or pain which may arise from words or deeds in reference to others with whom a man comes in contact. And, insofar as outward movements are signs of our inward disposition, their moderation belongs to the virtue of truthfulness, whereby a man, by word and deed, shows himself to be such as he is inwardly. Reply to Objection 4. It is censurable to study the style of one's outward movements by having recourse to pretense in them, so that they do not agree with one's inward disposition. Nevertheless, it behooves one to study them, so that if they be in any way inordinate, this may be corrected. Hence, Ambrose says, quote, Let them be without artifice, but not without correction. End quote. Article 2. Whether there can be a virtue about games? Objection 1. It would seem that there cannot be a virtue about games. For, Ambrose says, quote, Our Lord said, Woe to you who laugh, for you shall weep. Wherefore, I consider that all, and not only excessive, games should be avoided. End quote. Now, that which can be done virtuously is not to be avoided altogether. Therefore, there cannot be a virtue about games. Objection 2. 
Further, quote, Virtue is that which God forms in us, not without us, end quote, as stated above. Now, Chrysostom says, quote, It is not God, but the devil, that is the author of fun. Listen to what happened to those who played. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play, end quote. Therefore, there can be no virtue about games. Objection 3. Further, the philosopher says that, quote, Playful actions are not directed to something else, end quote. But it is a requisite of virtue that the agent in choosing should, quote, direct his action to something else, end quote, as the philosopher states. Therefore, there can be no virtue about games. On the contrary, Augustine says, quote, I pray thee, spare thyself at times, for it becomes a wise man sometimes to relax the high pressure of his attention to work, end quote. Now, this relaxation of the mind from work consists in playful words or deeds. Therefore, it becomes a wise and virtuous man to have recourse to such things at times. Moreover, the philosopher assigns to games the virtue of eutrapelia, which we may call pleasantness. I answer that, just as man needs bodily rest for the body's refreshment because he cannot always be at work, since his power is finite, and equal to a certain fixed amount of labor, so too is it with his soul, whose power is also finite and equal to a fixed amount of work. Consequently, when he goes beyond his measure in a certain work, he is oppressed and becomes weary, and all the more since, when the soul works, the body is at work likewise, and so far as the intellective soul employs forces that operate through bodily organs. Now, Sensible goods are connatural to man, and therefore, when the soul arises above sensibles, through being intent on the operations of reason, there results in consequence a certain weariness of soul, whether the operations with which it is occupied by those of practical or of the speculative reason. Yet, this weariness is greater if the soul be occupied with the work of contemplation, since thereby it is raised higher above sensible things. Although, perhaps certain outward works of the practical reason entail a greater bodily labor. On either case, however, one man is more soul-wearied than another, according as he is more intensely occupied with works of reason. Now, just as weariness of the body is dispelled by resting of the body, so weariness of the soul must needs be remedied by resting the soul. And the soul's rest is pleasure, as stated above. Consequently, the remedy for weariness of soul must needs consist in the application of some pleasure by slackening the tension of the reasoned study. Thus, in the conferences of the fathers, it is related of blessed John the Evangelist that when some people were scandalized on finding him playing together with his disciples, he is said to have told one of them who carried a bow to shoot an arrow. And when the latter had done this several times, he asked him whether he could do it indefinitely. And the man answered that if he had continued doing it, the bow would break. Whence the blessed John drew the inference that in like manner, man's mind would break if this tension were never relaxed. Now, such like words or deeds, wherein nothing further is sought than the soul's delight, are called playful or humorous. Hence, it is necessary at times to make use of them, in order to give rest, as it were, to the soul. This is in agreement with the statement of the philosopher, 
that, quote, in the intercourse of this life, there is a kind of rest that is associated with games, end quote. And consequently, it is sometimes necessary to make use of such things. Nevertheless, it would seem that in this matter, there are three points which require a special caution. The first and chief is that the pleasure in question should not be sought in indecent or injurious deeds or words. Wherefore, Tolley says that, quote, one kind of joke is discordious, insolent, scandalous, obscene, end quote. Another thing to be observed is that one lose not the balance of one's mind altogether. Hence, Ambrose says, quote, We should beware lest, when we seek relaxation of mind, we destroy all that harmony, which is the concord of good works, end quote. And Tolley says that, quote, Just as we do not allow children to enjoy absolute freedom in their games, but only that which is consistent with good behavior, so our very fun should reflect something of an upright mind, end quote. Thirdly, we must be careful as in all other human actions, to conform ourselves to persons, time, and place, and take due account of other circumstances, so that our fun, quote, befit the hour and the man, end quote, as Tully says. Now, these things are directed according to the rule of reason, and a habit that operates according to the reason of virtue. Therefore, there can be a virtue about games. The philosopher gives it the name of witness, eutrapelia, and a man is said to be pleasant through having a happy turn of mind, whereby he gives his words and deeds a cheerful turn, and inasmuch as this virtue restrains a man from immoderate fun, it is comprised under modesty. Eutropalia is derived from trepain, to turn. Reply to Objection 1. As stated above, fun should fit with business and persons. Wherefore, Tolly says that, quote, when the audience is wary, it will be useful for the speaker to try something novel or amusing, provided that joking be not incompatible with the gravity of the subject, end quote. Now, the sacred doctrine is concerning with things of the greatest moment, according to Proverbs 8, verse 6, quote, Here, for I will speak of great things, end quote. Wherefore, Ambrose does not altogether exclude fun from human speech, but from the sacred doctrine. Hence, he begins by saying, quote, Although jokes are at times fitting and pleasant, nevertheless, they are incompatible with the ecclesiastical rule, since how can we have recourse to things which are not to be found in holy writ? End quote. Reply to Objection 2 This saying of Chrysostom refers to the inordinate use of fun, especially by those who make the pleasure of games their end, of whom it is written, Wisdom, chapter 15, verse 12. Quote, they have accounted our life a pastime. End quote. Against these, Tully says, quote, We are so begotten by nature that we appear to be made not for play and fun, but rather for hardships and for occupations of greater gravity and moment. Reply to Objection 3. Playful actions themselves, considered in their species, are not directed to an end, but the pleasure derived from such actions is directed to the recreation and rest of the soul, and accordingly, if this be done with moderation, it is lawful to make use of fun. Hence, Tolley says, quote, It is indeed lawful to make use of plain fun, 
but in the same way as we have recourse to sleep and other kinds of rest, then only when we have done our duty by grave and serious matters. End quote. Article 3. Whether there can be sin and excess of play? Objection 1. It would seem that there cannot be sin in the excess of play, for that which is an excuse for sin is not to be held sinful. Now, play is sometimes an excuse for sin, for many things would be grave sins if they were done seriously, whereas if they be done in fun, are either no sin or but slightly sinful. Therefore, it seems that there could be no sin in excessive play. Objection 2. Further, all other vices are reducible to the seven capital sins, as Gregory states, but excess of play does not seem reducible to any of the capital vices. Therefore, it would seem not to be a sin. Objection 3. Further, comedians especially would seem to exceed in play, since they direct their whole life to playing. Therefore, if excess in play were a sin, all actors would be in a state of sin. Moreover, all those who employ them, as well as those who make them payment, would sin as accomplices of their sin. But this would seem untrue, for it is related in the lives of the fathers that is was revealed to the blessed Paphnutius that a certain jester would be with him in the life to come. On the contrary, a gloss on Proverbs 14, verse 13, quote, Laughter shall be mingled with sorrow, and mourning taketh hold of the end of joy, remarks, a mourning that will last forever, end quote. Now, there is inordinate laughter and inordinate joy in excess of play. Therefore, there is mortal sin therein, since mortal sin alone is deserving of everlasting mourning. I answer that, in all things dirigible according to reason, the excessive is that which goes beyond, and the deficient is that which falls short of the rule of reason. Now, it has been stated that playful or jesting words or deeds are dirigible according to reason. Wherefore, excessive play is that which goes beyond the rule of reason. And this happens in two ways. First, on account of the very species of the acts employed for the purpose of fun, and this kind of jesting, according to Tolly, is stated to be, quote, discordious, insolent, scandalous, and obscene, end quote, when to wit a man, for the purpose of jesting, employs indecent words or deeds, or such as are injurious to his neighbor, these being of themselves mortal sins. And thus, it is evident that an excess of play is a mortal sin. Secondly, there may be excess in play through lack of due circumstances. For instance, when people make use of fun at undue times or places, or out of keeping with the matter in hand or persons. This may be sometimes a mortal sin on account of the strong attachment to play, when a man prefers the pleasure he derives therefrom to the love of God, so as to be willing to disobey a commandment of God or of the church rather than forego such like amusements. Sometimes, however, it is a venial sin, for instance, where a man is not so attached to amusement as to be willing for its sake to do anything in disobedience to God. Reply to Objection 1. Certain things are sinful on account of the intention alone, because they are done in order to injure someone. Such an intention is excluded by their being done in fun, the intention of which is to please, not to injure. In these cases, fun excuses from sin or diminishes it. Other things, however, are sins according to their species, such as murder, fornication, 
and the like. And fun is no excuse for these. In fact, they make fun scandalous and obscene. Reply to Objection 2. Excessive play pertains to senseless mirth, which Gregory calls a daughter of gluttony. Wherefore, it is written, Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, quote, The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. End quote. Reply to Objection 3. As stated in Article 2, play is necessary for the intercourse of human life. Now, whatever is useful to human intercourse may have a lawful employment ascribed to it. Wherefore, the occupation of play actors, the object of which is to cheer the heart of man, is not unlawful in itself, nor are they in a state of sin, provided that their playing be moderated, namely, that they use no unlawful words or deeds in order to amuse, and that they do not introduce play into undue matters and seasons. And although in human affairs they have no other occupation in reference to other men, nevertheless, in reference to themselves and to God, they perform other actions both serious and virtuous, such as prayer and the moderation of their passions and operations, while sometimes they give alms to the poor. Wherefore, those who maintain them in moderation do not sin but act justly by rewarding them for their services. On the other hand, if a man spends too much on such persons or maintains those comedians who practice unlawful mirth, he sins as encouraging them in their sin. Hence, Augustine says that, quote, to give one property to comedians is a great sin, not a virtue, end quote. Unless by chance some play actor were in extreme need, in which case one would have to assist him, for Ambrose says, quote, Feed him that dies of hunger, for whenever thou canst save a man by feeding him, if thou hast not fed him, thou hast slain him, end quote. Article 4. Whether there is a sin and lack of mirth? Objection 1. It would seem that there is no sin and lack of mirth, for no sin is prescribed to a penitent. But Augustine, speaking of a penitent, says, quote, Let him refrain from games and the sights of the world if he wishes to obtain the grace of a full pardon. End quote. Therefore, there is no sin and lack of mirth. Objection 2. Further, no sin is included in the praise given to holy men, but some persons are praised for having refrained from mirth, for it is written, Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 17, quote, I sat not in the assembly of jesters, end quote, and Tobit chapter 3, verse 17, quote, Never have I joined myself with them that play, neither have I made myself partaker with them that walk in lightness, end quote. Therefore, there can be no sin in the lack of mirth. Objection 3. Further, Andronicus counts austerity to be one of the virtues, and he describes it as a habit whereby a man neither gives nor receives the pleasures of conversation. Now, this pertains to the lack of mirth. Therefore, the lack of mirth is virtuous rather than sinful. On the contrary, the philosopher reckons the lack of mirth to be a vice. I answer that, in human affairs, whatever is against reason is a sin. Now, it is against reason for a man to be burdensome to others, since he is deaf to the moderate mirth of others. Consequently, they are vicious, and are said to be boorish or rude, as the philosopher states. Since, however, mirth is useful for the sake of the rest and pleasures it affords, and since, in human life, pleasure and rest are not in quest for their own sake, but for the sake of operation, it follows that, quote, lack of mirth is less sinful than excess thereof, end quote. Hence, 
the philosopher says, quote, We should make few friends for the sake of pleasure, since but little sweetness suffices to season life, just as little salt suffices for our meat. End quote. Reply to objection one. Mirth is forbidden the penitent because he is called upon to mourn for his sins. Nor does this imply a vice in default, because this very diminishment of mirth in them is in accordance with reason. Reply to objection two. Jeremiah speaks there in accordance with the times, the state of which required that man should mourn. Wherefore, he adds, quote, I sat alone because thou hast filled me with threats. End quote. The words of Tobit chapter 3 refer to excessive mirth, and this is evident from his adding, quote, Neither have I made myself partaker with them that walk in lightness. End quote. Reply to objection 3. Austerity, as a virtue, does not exclude all pleasures, but only such as are excessive and inordinate. Wherefore, it would seem to pertain to affability, which the philosopher calls friendliness, or eutropelia, otherwise wittiness. Nevertheless, he names and defines it thus in respect of his agreement with temperance, to which it belongs to restrain pleasure.